Okay, uh, my name is uh, Ignacio Palacios Huerta, and I'm a professor uh, of management here at the London School of Economics. Um, I would like uh, to welcome you all to the LSE for this event. Um, and I would also like to tell you, to inform you that the event is being recorded and that we hope uh, there will be a podcast available online. Um, next, I would like to welcome uh, and to introduce the speaker, Professor Michael Cusumano. Um, <laughs> Professor Cusumano is the Sloan Management Review Distinguished Professor of Management at uh, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Uh, Sloan School of Management and with uh, also has a joint appointment at MIT's uh, Engineering Systems Division. Uh, Professor Cusumano received his BA degree from Princeton in 1976 and his PhD from Harvard in 1984. Uh, he then completed postdoctoral fellowship in production and operations management at Harvard Business School from 1984 to 1986. He received two Fulbright fellowships and a Japan Foundation fellowship for studying at uh, Tokyo University. Has been a visiting professor and researcher in various universities in Japan. Uh, also here in the UK and in several uh, other European uh, universities. He has consulted for approximately 100 companies around the world. And last year, 2009, he was named one of the most influential people in technology and IT by silicon.com. Uh, Professor Kusumano has so far published nine books, uh, some of which have made it to the top, test business, uh, top 10 list of business books of the year. Uh, probably his uh, most famous one, most successful one, was uh, Microsoft Secrets in 1995, jointly written with Richard 1995. Selby. 1995. 1995. Uh, so I'm old, but I'm old, not but not that old. old. <laughs> <laughs> Sold approximately 150,000 copies, has been translated into 14 languages. Uh, in 2004, he published the business software was also uh, named one of the best business books of the year by Steve Law in the New York Times. His latest book is Staying in Power, Six Enduring Principles of, for Managing a Strategy and Innovation in an Uncertain World. <laughs> right here, just as a brief introduction of the a description of the book, uh, it seems clear that the critical question these days for most managers uh, in around the world is uh, whether uh, they can both adapt uh, uh, to rapid changes in technology and markets and still make enough money to survive and to thrive. So to provide answers to these important questions, uh, Professor Kusumano draws on nearly 30 years of research into the practices of global corporations that have been acknowledged as leaders and benchmark setters, such as Microsoft, Apple, Intel, Google, and others uh, in software, internet services, and consumer electronics, and Toyota in manufacturing. Uh, if we look deep enough, uh, he contends, we can see the ideas that underpin the management practices that make for these great companies. From his deep knowledge of these organizations, Professor Kusumano distills six principles uh, that he believes have been, and in various combinations, crucial to their strategies. So without further delay, let me invite Professor Kusumano to deliver his lecture on the topic staying in power, Stay in power, six enduring principles for managing a study and innovation. We're expecting Professor Kusumano to deliver a lecture for around 40 minutes. After that, there will be a question and answer session for around 20 minutes. Uh, stewards in the audience will give you uh, microphones. 
the event will more or less conclude around 7.45. Uh, and after that, there will be a book sale and a book signing. Uh, he'll be available to sign books outside the lecture theater. I've been told by the publishers that they only accept cash. And so please uh, join me in welcome Professor Cusimano to the LSE. Again, it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, this is the formal week which we are kicking off the book in Europe. And again, I've been working on this book, it seems, all of my life, so it's a, it's a great pleasure to, to share some of it with you. So let me get into this, basically, and, and again, this is a tour of some of my other books, but when I delivered the Oxford Clarendon Lectures last year, actually they asked me to do that in 2005, they give you four years to think about it, and they asked me to look back over my research and try to synthesize what I learned. And again, as Ignacio said, uh, the problem was really to, uh, to try to identify enduring principles. There's, I studied uh, many companies over the years, started out looking at Japan, and one of the problems of Japan, of course, is that great firms 30, 40 years ago in a great country known around the world for best practices in management has been struggling for 20 years. And the problem of Japan was very much in my consciousness. And it seems that every time we designate a company as a company as one of the great companies, uh, they seem to be collapsing. And uh, so I've been very careful not to really have a list of great companies. Instead, I try to abstract out the principles behind what has made some companies successful over long periods of time. So I try to rise above, uh, let's say, this uh, best practices debate or attempts to get at uh, uh, excellent practices and, and try to get a, a bit more fundamental and more research-based. Uh, in, in this book uh, and in my last book as well, I felt I was really dealing with a bigger challenge, and that was what I call this simultaneous age of uh, innovation and commoditization. And the problem here is that uh, in lots of technologies, uh, in lots of industries, uh, customers demand increasingly innovative features or services, uh, but they don't want to pay a lot for them. The software industry in particular has this problem where the marginal cost of reproducing a software product or a digital file is essentially zero. So people don't want to pay anything, in many cases, for software or internet search and these kinds of things. But even with uh, various other kinds of high-tech products, prices have been dropping. So this is a huge problem. We're used to it in hardware because of Moore's Law and the advance of semiconductors and uh, computers get faster and they get cheaper all the time at some level. Uh, but uh, in other industries, we've seen this as well. In software in particular, prices can drop to zero. And uh, that happens all the time with open source and free software. Uh, and then we have other problems with China, for example. China has been uh, developing its uh, technology capabilities, and they can make uh, Cisco routers for and sell them for a quarter of the price of what Cisco sells them for, for example. Their prices become the world's prices in many ways. Uh, India, uh, where I work a lot, I'm a director of an Indian software company and have been for seven years and was involved in uh, its establishment at some level 20 years ago. Um, they can deliver almost any type of high-tech services for a fraction of the price that uh, we pay in the United States or Europe or Japan or Korea. So this makes for a very difficult competitive environment. 
So there's not a lot of room for error, which is why understanding best practices uh, is especially important. At the same time, um, it's very difficult to identify best practices, and most of the attempts to do so really have not done so very rigorously. So again, I've uh, taken the stance that it is possible if we look deeply enough to really identifying un to identify underlying principles that really are lasting, even if the companies that were associated with these principles may stumble uh, or uh, have some other kinds of problems. And again, one of my contentions is that just about every company, every country uh, as well, will go through cycles of up and down, and success often breeds difficulties. The more successful you become, the bigger you become, the more international you become, the more complex operations become, and often it becomes difficult to sustain that performance. And we go up and down all the time. Almost every great company has experienced it. So I'm trying to get beyond fads and looking at particular firms and look at ideas. So this is my list, um, and I should say it's, it's a list of six principles that have been, I'd say, deeply and closely associated with my work, my work with students, and a few other people in the field of strategy and innovation. None of the ideas are, are original to me, so you're going to see a familiar list. And uh, again, I do think that this list should be enduring, and you can make your own judgment. So what I'll do today in the time we have is just give you a quick overview of the six principles. Uh, in the book, I have one chapter devoted to each principle. I start with sort of an intellectual history of the idea, I end with lessons for managers, and I take you through some deep examples of how these principles have been put into action at specific companies. Uh, but we won't have time to go into all the principles today. I'll just try to really explain one in some depth and uh, maybe get to the second one a little bit. We'll see how the time goes. So the first one is that in an increasing number of industries, managers should think first about creating or working with platforms rather than just create standalone products. And the word platform is commonly used and commonly misused, and I'll talk a bit about that. The second principle is that, again, in an increasing number of industries, what used to be product companies now really should place most of their emphasis, or at least an equal emphasis, on services rather than just products, or even delivering their product as a service. In software, we have software as a service. Um, even in the automobile industry, we have things like Zipcar. How many of you are familiar with Zipcar in the United States? Okay, where you essentially rent a car as you use it. You pay for the time you use it in a very short increments. Uh, we have another British company, Rolls-Royce, which has made the idea of power by the hour uh, very famous. So essentially they've taken their product, which is engines, and rather than sell them, which are expensive, they basically lease them for the time that an aircraft manufacturer or another kind of power company that uses an engine would need to use the engine. So again, it's productizing a service. So we'll see if I have time to talk more about that. But in many, many industries, that's what's becoming important. And in many industries, the product itself has become commoditized and the only way to make money from the industry is from services. I have a long discussion about the automobile industry, for example, and companies like General Motors and Ford. All the money they've really made over the past dozen years 
has come from services, not from the products themselves. Uh, there's a coupling between the two, which is complex, but uh, they've made most of their money from loans, leases, extended warranties, after-sales repair, uh, even telematics in the case of uh, General Motors. So again, that's, that's what that chapter is about. The next six ideas, and I'll put them out as a group, are more traditional. I think they've, they've had much longer track records in the field of management and strategy as being recognized as important. The first two ideas of platforms and services, uh, I think, are more associated with the high-tech world and have become much more prominent, I think, in the past 10, 15 years or so. Although I do talk about things like the Barbie doll, actually, as a platform, which appeared in 1958. Um, so this is not only a high-tech phenomenon, but mostly we, we begin to think about it in terms of things like personal computers or smartphones or Facebook, social networking platform, and those sorts of things. Uh, and these are also services as well. But the other four uh, are, are, I think, without an argument, uh, much more, or at least much more established as important in the management field. So my third principle is that managers should be thinking in terms of capabilities, not just strategy. And by strategy here, I mean strategic positioning or, or formal strategic planning. And the idea here, related to the subtitle of the book, which is dealing with an uncertain world, is that uh, much of what we experience in the world and in different markets is really not predictable, particularly in high-tech, fast-paced markets. Uh, but also in other markets affected by things like oil shocks or earthquakes or global depressions or 9-11 types of terrorist events. Uh, but companies that actually have deep, distinctive capabilities, I argue, uh, are much more able to survive these unpredictable events and uh, survive to compete another day. Uh, or it could also be an unforeseen uh, catastrophic quality problem, such as Toyota experienced uh, the last uh, two years, which I write about quite, about quite a bit about in the book. Um, but again, their deep capabilities in manufacturing and engineering and quality control will really take them through this crisis quite nicely, even if they can't predict or control the future very well. The fourth principle is uh, what I call pull, don't just push. And this comes from the operations field, but we see it also in marketing. My first example is really the just-in-time production system from Toyota, where the information flow controlling the mix of products and final assembly is actually reversed, and it's tied directly to orders coming in from dealers. But I argue there's a parallel uh, to that also in um, things like iterative or prototype-driven product development. Um, and there's many other things in the world that I argue can be divided into sort of push orientation where people try to develop a plan and, and just follow that plan versus a pull mechanism where you try to create direct linkages to your customers or, to, or create something that resembles real-time feedback so you can adjust very quickly to changes in the market or changes in technology or competition. So these are all around the subject of pull systems or pull concepts. I should note that I hedge each of these. I don't argue that you should never push things out to market. Uh, you'll see companies like Sony or Apple sometimes develop something in research and push it out to the market before they're really sure that somebody wants it. So sometimes you do want to push. Uh, but most innovations actually really need to be 
directly tied to a, a group of people who will become customers and having some kind of pull mechanism to relate directly to information from the market is critical. My fifth principle I call scope, not just scale. And here, um, I guess in the back of my mind, I was thinking of uh, Ford and the Model T, where uh, Ford's motto was, uh, any color you want is fine as long as it's black. And uh, they just tried to crank out as many cars as they could and maximize efficiency and economies of scale. Uh, my argument in the book is that really over the last several decades, most markets have really uh, f not quite fragmented, but they've segmented into uh, situations where variety is actually more important than just low price, for example. And, and in many markets, uh, you don't even have formal prices. You might have advertising, funding, and activity. But customers generally want variety, and that's part of the innovation and commoditization dilemma. So what I argue in this chapter is that companies need to master economies of scope. And this is reusing components, knowledge, people, uh, channels, whatever it may be, across different products or customer engagements. In service firms, uh, almost every customer engagement is different and an economy of scale kind of mentality doesn't get you very far. So that's what that chapter is about. And uh, the sixth principle, I again call flexibility, not just efficiency. And here the argument is again that many things that occur in markets are not predictable. And managers really need to be thinking of ways of building flexibility into their company and into their decision-making processes. There's often a cost of flexibility. So uh, training workers so that they can handle multiple jobs or multiple situations costs uh, more investment in training, for example, or building a flexible factory or building a, uh, a product development organization that can do multiple types of things. So there is some upfront investment. Um, but from the examples I've looked at and from other research I've seen, the benefits over the long term, again, are very extensive. It, again, allows companies to be agile and adapt to change or unforeseen events. So three, four, five, and six are, are really about agility and being able to respond to change or even lead change. Whereas platforms and services are concepts that are describing a lot of new markets. And uh, putting these things together, I argue that at least in many industries, managers need to think about the whole system of what they're doing in a different way where the focus, again, is around platforms and services and mechanisms that connect them to the customer more directly and build on distinctive and dynamic capabilities rather than more traditional product-focused types of competition. Okay, so I think this is not a terribly controversial list, but um, um, I think if you've... Well, I, I hope it will have a profound impact on how managers think going forward. So let me give you a demonstration or at least a, a deeper insight into how I talk about platforms. And uh, probably we won't get much farther than that. Um, so I start out each chapter with an intellectual history of the idea. And platforms is a word we use all the time. 
uh, in the management field, it started out as an in-house product platform concept, the notion that companies could build a family of products around some common components. The automobile industry has done this for many years. I wrote a book about that a dozen years ago. Um, um, consumer electronics companies do it. The family of cell phones will be built around a common kernel of components and microprocessors and software. Uh, at some point, it became associated with more industry-level usage of those components for multiple companies to build products around. And this became connected with industry-level standards, things like dominant designs, and the notion that companies could build products that actually complement those core or foundation components. And these create what we call network effects. And I'll get into that a bit more. And, and more recently, we, we see the platform uh, analysts or economists talking about what we call multi-sided markets, the notion that some platform industries are quite complex and have multiple sides to them. Um, a market side are different targets in the, in the industry or as part of the value chain. So in the smartphone platform market, for example, you have operators, you have application software developers, you have certainly uh, content providers, uh, maybe internet service providers, which might be different from some of the operators. So there's many different pieces, all of which need to be managed by companies that are trying to compete as platform companies or as complementers. So let me just give a quick definition. So when I use the term platform, I'm actually talking about a set of technologies or components, could even be services, that are used beyond a single firm and whose value increases geometrically as more users use those components and as more complements appear around those platforms. And this is a phenomenon known by a lot of names, positive feedback, bandwagon effects. Those are the terms I used when I first wrote about this uh, 20 years ago in the video recorder industry, the Betamax versus VHS uh, competition. Network externality or network effects are really the words we use today. There's lots of examples, railroads, telegraph, electric power, radio, VCRs. A television, for example, is pretty much worthless without broadcasting content, right? And the content providers are usually different from the television manufacturers. Uh, and so there we have a network effect between the platform, right, and the complement. The more televisions out there, the more valuable they become, as more people use them, more complements appear. In other words, more programming appears. I tried to draw a picture of this, uh, and again, I mostly use high-tech products, but I also wrote about the Barbie doll, and this was uh, just simply because a, a friend of mine uh, whose daughter had a Barbie doll, she left it at my house one day, and it sat on a shelf, and I looked at it for six months, and I also looked at the accessories that she had also left. Uh, there was a car and clothes and and all which were designed to fit with the Barbie doll, all, all licensed from Mattel, and I realized there was a whole industry built around the Barbie doll. And that really was a kind of platform, and there certainly were network effects. The more kids that bought them, the more valuable the doll became, and then that had a, a behavioral effect on other kids who saw that happening, and they would buy it, and advertisers would come in and advertise on the Barbie doll site, their chat rooms, songs, shopping guides, everything you could possibly imagine. And we talk about direct and indirect network effects. A direct effect 
is really connected to some type of technical compatibility or incompatibility. Like a Windows uh, application only works on a Windows PC, that's a direct effect. But an indirect network effect would be if, let's say, uh, advertisers see more people or lots of people using Google as a search engine, so they decide they want to advertise on Google. That's a behavioral uh, impact. Or kids see other kids buying Barbie dolls, and that affects their buying choice, sort of like an indirect network effect. Okay, so there's this feed, these positive feedback loops that go on. Now, most of us are familiar with these kinds of platform battles, and if we start thinking about it, you see them almost everywhere. And there's lots of platforms within platforms and all sorts of, in, in all sorts of segments of modern industries. And web search or smartphones, digital media, social networking is another big one. Facebook is actually a platform, and there's a tremendous battle going on between Facebook, Twitter, um, uh, MySpace, and Google, which is trying to pry open uh, these different social networking sites. Um, even power systems, batteries, electronic displays, lots of companies trying to get their technologies adopted by lots of other firms as a foundation to build a multitude of products or offer different services, and again, creating these kinds of dynamic effects. So in chapter one, I really try to take on this issue of what should the strategy of a firm be uh, can they think platform first, and how do they balance that with trying to develop great products? How can they think about taking their product or their technology and spinning it out to become something that resembles an industry platform? And uh, I talk also about lots of different strategic tools, the platform strategy toolkit, that the firms might use to actually influence how a market progresses. And obviously, every company would like to be a platform leader. Most companies are really platform complementers, so they need to understand both sides of this. So there's, there's really a number of things. The decision, the levers, ideas, the notion of what complements you make in-house, how open is your platform, what do you do to attract external uh, complementers, and how do you organize internally uh, to make that happen, particularly if you're competing with some of your complementers, like... Microsoft, for example, makes lots of applications that outside companies do, but its platform is Windows, so it actually has to compete in many ways with outside companies, but be somewhat neutral to make sure that its platform, Windows, is still attractive enough to have outside developers build applications. And uh, coring and tipping is really about how to become a platform where one doesn't exist before or things you can do to get a market to tip in your direction, such as subsidizing one half of the platform. You know, why does Adobe give away the readers? Well, it's trying to actually seed a market for its servers and other types of editing tools. And that's a way to establish itself as a platform for handling documents, for example, or media. Right? So you, that's another uh, multi-sided market. And winner-take-all, or most, is a framework uh, that's useful for understanding the dynamics of markets and, and thinking about how much share is, is possible for a company to get. So I'm going to give you some examples, really, from the winner-take-all framework, primarily. Um, but an interesting uh, company is Apple, which I argue in the book uh, really got the platform idea wrong. And this is one of our, the greatest companies we've ever seen in terms of innovation. Um, 
and they've come up with a, you know, a, a, an incredibly impressive string of hit products. But has Apple thought platform first or have they thought product first? And my argument is they've generally thought product first until the last few years. They've undergone this transition as I think even Steve Jobs and the guys around him have finally understood the importance of being somewhat of an open technology that others can actually uh, participate in and create an ecosystem around these products. So I, it's again, I think an experience that Apple uh, encountered with the iPod as it first realized the importance of having other companies make accessories to connect your iPod to your stereo or your car and then have digital content downloaded, which Apple itself is not able to create. So if it doesn't open up the platform, it doesn't have much value in that iPod device. So they've caught up to Microsoft in value, and uh, they're still not as big or not as profitable, but that's because Microsoft is a, pretty much a pure software company, and software has these magical gross margins uh, based on the fact that reproducing a software product essentially costs zero. Um, and uh, Apple still has to do uh, R, quite a bit of R&D and actually build boxes and ship them. Uh, but they've actually changed their philosophy to be much more open than they used to be. And it's, again, had a dramatic impact on the value of Apple as well as in their sales and profitability. It's actually quite interesting that in 1995, uh, Apple was twice the size of Microsoft in terms of sales, $11 billion to just under $6 billion. But Apple's value was about $4.4 billion, where Microsoft's was $35 billion. And this is really, to me, the value of a platform company, as well as a company that's positioned itself in a growth market. And there's been a dramatic change as, as Microsoft has essentially stagnated for, for a decade, and Apple has dramatically increased its sales as it's adopted not only a hit product strategy, because that's a great basis for its platform strategy, but connected all of its devices, linked them up with a service, which is iTunes and App Store, and we have, again, these geometrically increasing returns to Apple as, uh, as it rolls out these products and as companies build complements. So let me just introduce this framework here, which uh, some of my colleagues have, have really refined, and I've sort of put this, uh, these ideas on steroids in some ways. But Tom Eisenman, uh, Jeffrey Parker, and Marsha Van Alstyne talked about these ideas, and that's the basic idea is to try to understand what makes for a winner-take-all dynamics in markets. And um, they talk about three factors. Uh, and one is that there has to be very strong network effects. Second, the competing platforms have to be pretty much the same. In other words, there has to be relatively little differentiation or little opportunities for different companies to develop niche strategies or differentiation strategies. In other words, there has to be relatively few opportunities for competitors to split up the market into different segments. And then third, it has to be difficult for users or complementers, such as application developers, uh, to use more than one platform or to write for more than one platform. So these are factors which will push a market towards one winner. And the last factor they, they call multi-homing, or the economists call multi-homing, it's the notion of having multiple homes. Okay, so I, here's just some examples that I write about in the book. These are essentially theoretical concepts largely influenced by economics, but we can see them happening in reality. 
So years ago, I wrote about the video recorder market, and, uh, and we can see these factors at play here. Why did VHS win essentially 100% of the video recorder market? Most of you probably never even saw a VCR. Is that right? Or you've been to museums at least, right? Okay. But at one time, this was the high-tech battle, Betamax versus JVC. And I was sort of right there in the middle of it studying these companies as a Japan specialist. Uh, are there strong network effects? Yes, they're direct network effects. VHS tapes are incompatible with, BA, with Betamax tapes. So there's a direct network effect between the complement, which is the pre-recorded tape or a camera, uh, and the platform, which is essentially the box with the, the technology. Little differentiation? Yes. As a matter of fact, the, the pre-recorded tapes could be in either format, but they're identical. There was some differentiation between the boxes. Betamax was shorter than playing time in VHS, but very quickly the, the differences were eliminated, and um, so people had to decide which one to buy. Uh, the third is, uh, was there a high cost of multi-homing? And my answer is yes, because these boxes were expensive 30 years ago, and they were bulky, and you tended to buy one. Right? So if they're all the same, you buy the one that has the most complements available, which is the most pre-recorded tapes. Uh, and there were some factors here manipulated by Japan Victor, JVC, and its uh, parent company, Matsushita. They widely licensed the VHS uh, technology standard. They incorporated features that a lot of other companies wanted in the technology. They recruited lots of movie studios and then television companies to make pre-recorded tapes and get distri distribution. So they did a lot of things to manipulate these factors. These are not just abstract factors of network effects and, and, and so forth. They actually strategically maneuvered to make these happen. That was the title of my article, actually, Strategic Maneuvering. So this market went to 100%. And by the way, Sony had 100% of this market in 1975. And they ended up with zero within a half a dozen years. And you could see it unfolding. Uh, another example, why did Windows win 95% of the desktop market, even though I think almost everyone would acknowledge that the Betamax, uh, I mean, the, the Macintosh was a far superior product. came out in 1985. Um, and it really took Microsoft 25 years to really completely match uh, the graphical user interface uh, in Apple, but they got close enough by 1990 with uh, Windows 3.0 and 1992, 93. And so they made, they switched the battle from the uniqueness of the product to actually the power of the platform. How many application developers were developing applications? What was the cost? multi-homing types of issues, as well as the availability of applications. So strong network effects, yes, they're completely incompatible systems. An application written to work on the Mac does not work on a PC and vice versa. Little differentiation, yes, eventually. This is all of Microsoft's R&D was targeted at matching Apple or coming close enough or good enough. Uh, Mac survived, uh, whereas the Betamax did not because Mac found a niche of... Uh, desktop publishing and people interested in extreme ease of use, mostly schools, and a high cost of multi-homing. The Mac uh, generally costs about two times that of a PC, and PCs are expensive to begin with, so most people choose one. How many of you have both a Macintosh computer or an iMac and a PC? Just how many have two of the, both machines? Okay, so relatively few. How many have just one? 
I just want to check how many are responding. Okay, so you fit, you fit the theory, and some people have nothing. How many have no, no, no None of you have no computer. Um, another one I've been interested in in writing about is the video game market. Here's a market Microsoft entered, thinking it could turn it into a PC market. Why? Strong network effects. Right? If Microsoft could get 95% of the PC market, why couldn't they get 95% of video games? Very strong network effects. An application, a video game written for one console does not work on another console. What about differentiation? So here they run into problems. The Xbox is very different from the PlayStation, which is very different from Nintendo. And so each company has different strengths, different capabilities, which they've built into their boxes, and they really have gone after different markets. Uh, is there a high cost of multi-homing? And my answer here is actually no. Uh, the boxes are pretty cheap, and also the console makers subsidize that side of the market. They basically subsidize the consumer side by selling the boxes at cost, pretty much, and they try to make money from the game developers, the software side, which we call a complement. And so again, this is another multi-sided market where they targeted uh, one side to make money, but because of this, um, you, the market ends up being split. How many of you are serious uh, gamers? How many of you have video game machines? You don't want to admit it, I know. <laughs> um, how many of you have more than one? Okay, all right, so everybody who raised a hand and interested in gaming has actually more than one. You fit the theory here too. So unless you have no differentiation and high cost of multi-homing as well as strong network effects, you're gonna have a split platform market. Uh, here's another one, search. How many of you use Google? You all use Google, but Google doesn't have 100% of the global search market. There are not really strong network effects between the user and the search bar. There are some network effects in the search algorithms. So it gets smarter the more you use it. And there's some increasing returns there to Google, uh, at least in terms of the uh, sophistication of the searches and their targeted ads. Uh, but the network effects are really not that strong for users. Um, there actually is differentiation. Uh, most searches uh, are sort of similar, but lots of different countries have come up with specialized search engines. China has built a wall around the whole country, giving an advantage to its local search engines. Brazil has sort of done something similar. Microsoft has come up with a more local, sensitive search engine. There are video search engines. Google was not particularly strong there, but then they bought YouTube and have some other search technology. So there's actually some variety there. And um, is there a high cost of multi-homing? No, you can, you can use multiple search engines. It doesn't cost you anything. All you do is, is plug in another URL. So this is a market that will probably never go 100%. But because Google does have a superior search engine, they get most of the market. So this is a winner take most kind of market. Smartphones is a, another battle that's going on now. Strong network effects, it's like the PC. You write an application to work on a, a RIM BlackBerry phone or an iPhone or a, or a uh, Symbian phone. It's really locked into that platform. Um, is there little differentiation? Actually, no. These are very different systems. BlackBerry is great for email. iPhone is great for multimedia. Uh, Microsoft is sort of good if you want a computing function on your handheld. Uh, Symbian is great for telephony. They're actually quite different. So until they really get unified, and Google is trying to do that, they're trying to build a platform that can do everything 
good enough, sort of like Windows did years ago, so that people gravitate towards Google. And of course, they make their platform free, which is very attractive, right? But if it's not better, people won't do it, even if it is free. So a lot of users are still around BlackBerry and even Symbian. Is there a high cost of multi-homing? This is another problem for the smartphone market. There is. The phones themselves are subsidized. <laughs> Sometimes they're free with the contract. And here's another example of uh, the importance of services. A lot of smartphone or even uh, feature phone manufacturers, they make no money from the product. They give the product away. But the value chain makes money from the service contract, right? So that's a case of sort of servitizing a product and figuring out ways of generating value from the service. And there's a high cost of multi-homing here on the service. So the contracts are quite expensive. So let me just wrap this up with some lessons for managers here. And again, I talk about the importance of understanding the differences between a platform versus a product strategy, the differences in the actual value you can create as a manager. And then, again, doing this well, uh, I emphasize the importance of really understanding the interplay between a product and a platform strategy and all the different elements that actually make these work. And we could use these elements about how to win a platform battle, um, uh, not just to understand what's happening in markets, but in many ways to predict what might happen in a market. Okay, so I don't really want to go much more than that. I've given you some sense of what the other chapters are about. Um, so what I'd like to do is open this up to some questions, if we can. All right? Okay, so we have 20 uh, minutes for questions. Okay, I see one in the middle over here. Thanks. Alistair Driver, I mean, you, you've, very interesting the idea of the, the difference in value between a platform and a product. And I, I imagine that's probably fairly well understood now in the sort of high technology industries you've been looking for. But I'd be interested to hear if you can see significant industries where there's the scope for basing an approach much more on platforms than there is on products, but people haven't recognized it yet. Hmm. Well, they haven't recognized it yet. Well, uh, um... Hmm. After you start thinking about platforms, you see them almost anywhere. So um, it's very hard to imagine an industry that doesn't have potential for this. And I know that's not a direct answer to your question. But I, I had a meeting over lunch today, actually, uh, and there was a lawyer attending. And he said, well, my industry doesn't do this. We're all fragmented. We have local lawyers. And then I talked to him about the things like uh, uh, TurboTax. Or, or software that actually automates or semi-automates a lot of what, uh, say, the tax accountants do. And that is an industry where we've created some software platforms for doing a lot of what used to be a labor-intensive service work. Um, is it possible to do that in the legal field? I think it is, actually. A lot of things do not need to be individually built we could have some common foundation for a lot of legal analysis. We can do the same thing in healthcare. Uh, we can do the same thing in retailing of various types. So I think if you think about it, you'll see it. Something like auctions and book selling, which are old industries, ancient industries, 
uh, have actually been turned around by companies that have built platforms in those areas, like Amazon and eBay. Uh, so, I mean, if, if, uh, and if the Barbie doll is a platform, I've, uh, I had another meeting yesterday with some uh, engineers and scientists from Imperial College that had invented a new kind of process for making concrete. And they want to talk to me about that becoming a foundation for the whole civil engineering industry, for example, where they would license it to other companies. And uh, I've had conversations with chemical companies about, and biotech companies where they have molecules they want to have as a basis, or human genome companies that see information being collected on the human genome as a common basis for drug discovery and different ways of managing that. So I see it almost everywhere. Almost everywhere. Another one right in the middle. Hi, Richard Seabohm. I used to be a, in DTI giving small grants, research grants, and the, people, act, the uh, operational people would say, well, if you give us a grant, my main board will think it's okay and go, let me go ahead. Um, what, have you anything, do you work on ownership and control of companies, and therefore who calls the shots in this stuff? Mm. Well, in these kinds of platform markets, it's, um, I'm not really sh sure exactly what you're, you're asking, but we, we argue, and I've argued not only in this book, but another book, Platform Leadership, uh, that platform markets require some kind of leadership. If otherwise, they become fragmented. And we all know the frustration of having things that do not work together, right? If your cell phone did not sync up with your PC, did not sync up with your, your multimedia device, it didn't, doesn't sync up with your TV probably anyway, or your game device, you get confused. Uh, and you waste a lot of money. There's a lot of time, money, energy wasted with incompatibility. One of the reasons the PC is taken off, actually, is, uh, I think, because Microsoft dominated and 95% of the world ended up with compatible personal computers. So that made making peripherals and devices and applications a lot cheaper and ubiquitous. So somebody needs to be a leader. Now, in some cases, a government might want to step in. I have a little case study in the book about attempts to create a digital home where everything in your house talks to each other. And we would need some kind of hardware and software layer to be the platform for that to happen. And there's about a dozen companies trying to be that company or to be cooperating in that company. And that's a market where it's so fragmented and there's so much competition. You know, Intel, Apple, Sony, Samsung, even Sears, Roebuck, big retailers are involved. You might need government to step in and create some standards that actually lead to the creation of a platform. Right now, civil construction companies are trying to mobilize the government to create standards. Digital TV was something that where the government sort of stepped in and created the standard, and then the technology that becomes a platform to do that becomes promoted by a few companies that own the right patents, for example. So basically, I, uh, my argument is that platform markets, to be economically successful for the companies involved, generally require some kind of leadership. Uh, we profile Intel that has really tried to orchestrate the PC market with Microsoft as a partner without formally controlling the thousands of companies that make PCs and applications. Uh, so I hope that answers you. I mean, there, there is some kind of orchestration that's required. 
uh, open source people, say from the Linux movement, uh, will argue that the people can do it by themselves. But in reality, even something like Linux is very tightly orchestrated by a small group of people. Right. Okay, a couple more questions over here. We're loosening up. We're loosening up. Okay. Hi. Um, is there any space in a list of enduring principles for managing strategy and innovation in an uncertain world for company culture? So uh, do you have any case studies perhaps where a good company culture has led to, uh, has been a good driver of innovation in a company? Um, well, I don't specifically talk about culture, but my principles are actually quite broad. So... Investing in capabilities is essentially investing in people and essentially having a philosophy that these deep organizational capabilities are more important than taking strategic shortcuts and those kinds of things. So that actually implies a certain culture. And uh, my example in the capabilities uh, chapter, my three examples, are Toyota, uh, which has run into some recent problems, but I believe the culture of Toyota will help them overcome those problems. I also write about Japan Victor Corporation, which had a particular culture of uh, accommodating others and being trying to be a leader but without forcing its views on the rest of the world. And it became this sort of pass, this, this very successful platform leader by getting something like 40, 50 companies around the world to work with it on the VHS standard. That is also an aspect of the culture of the company, which was somewhat humble compared to Sony, which tried to force its solution on other companies and uh, only and basically no one adopted it and that's always been Sony's problem that's been Apple's problem until recently um, I also write about Microsoft which was a very specific kind of culture aimed at the mass market and sort of incremental innovation rather than radical <coughs> innovation but trying to get a grasp on platform dynamics and mass marketing so flexibility chapter also has a lot on culture in the sense of what managers value in these firms? Do they, do they value the ability to do things in a, in, a, in a way that could change or accommodate uh, different circumstances, or do, are they very devoted and fixated on one particular way of doing things? So culture comes in there, but it's, this is not specifically a book about culture. But it's hard to talk about innovation or great companies or even failing companies without getting into sort of these uh, organizational issues within the firm. And I pay quite a bit of attention to that. I saw a couple other hands up here. Yeah. Uh, thank you for a fantastic talk, first of all. And I have more of a general question. Um, if this, you know, six principles that you say uh, will have a major impact on how managers think and they do go forward, in, you know, with their companies um, and basing them on platforms and services, how would, if you, like, just a few thoughts about how would an economy like that look like in terms of, you know, maybe labor or um, anything of this kind? Thank you. Okay, well, I, I do end the book with the discussion of what would a firm look like that basically embraced these principles or most of these principles. Um, so I actually think a lot of the more successful companies we see around the world follow these kinds of principles. 
Um, and again, I'm a bit biased towards high-tech software or communications industries or internet industries because that's what, that's what I've mostly studied, but I've also spent a lot of time on, on automobiles and consumer electronics. So I, uh, I'm, I'm not sh I think we will see dynamic companies that, that grow and, and don't necessarily stagnate and can adapt. Uh, to change, and, I, and um, I think that's the primary thing I'm concerned about. I mean, that's the idea of staying power, that I think the problem we see in management is that we see too many fads or too many one-hit wonder companies, and they just cannot sustain that performance. So that's where I'm arguing uh, that these principles are important. And I think for an economy, they're very important, too. I think we'll get more stability or stable growth from firms and economies that are investing in things like capabilities or flexibility, uh, even pull systems where they have more direct linkages to the market and are focused around differentiation, uh, at least for customers, not necessarily in a platform dynamic, economies of scope rather than narrow scale economies, for example. So countries like Chile, for example, are very focused on just a few industries and massive mining activities, for example, driving most of their economy. So I'm arguing that's sort of bad. That leaves them too susceptible to the vagaries of markets and commodities, for example. And if you want to create great companies that will be around a long time or countries that will be around a long time, you need to embrace more things, more industries, more ability to adapt and and, and handle different kinds of industries and variety. So, um, I mean, that's my vision. And I think it is accepted. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I'm quite interested in how you transform companies and the management of companies um, from, from what I see every day, typically into companies that behave this way. What I, what I normally see, companies are not behaving this way. They're primarily where it comes to innovation, not thinking in terms of platforms, and typically taking orders literally and figuratively from their biggest customers. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you take a company that, that has a management with that sort of order-taking orientation and, and transform it into a company that's got the, um, the commitment to the, the, the vision and the investment required to try to roll out a platform as you describe. Yeah, and it's not just platforms, it's things like investing in capabilities, investing in flexibility, and as I said, there is a short-term cost. I think it starts with the CEO and the board of directors, and the board of directors in particular has more staying power than the CEO usually and they help set the long-term direction of the company, the culture of the company in some ways. Uh, but the CEO plays a critical role. So I agree, if there's a, a weakness in this framework, it's that too many companies have CEOs who are there for very short periods of time, three, four years, and often they're, they're looking to maximize uh, um, their returns uh, in, you know, in two or three years, and then they're on to some other job. So if that's the kind of company you have, you're not likely to, to have staying power. Right? So uh, now a board of directors chooses that CEO or they can get rid of CEOs that exhibit uh, that kind of um, short-term maximization, long-term negative uh, behavior. So again, that's where I think it begins. We have a question here and we had one over there too. So go over there. I think you were his, he was first. 
Thanks. I can see uh, you can. Right. I'm particularly interested in your third, uh, fourth enduring principle, which is pull, don't push. Uh, basically, if you go for a pull and you actually anticipate the customer, I mean, you, you require a feedback from the customer from his needs. But most of the times, customers, they don't know what is their need and you have to create. So, for example, Sony or Apple, they are investing huge in innovation. So they are actually creating a need rather than waiting for the pull to come from the customer. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one thing. Uh, so what are your views on that? Secondly, on platforms and product strategy. I mean, companies that would go on uh, developing a platform or a product, they would actually, I mean, that's what my view is, might be wrong, but they would actually start with doing with the product because the platform would have profits being shared by the different industry participants right. and the barriers would be lower, you know, for other people to enter. So how would a company can go about, you know, thinking about I would develop a platform and I would still retain my leadership over a longer period of time? Right. So your first question, if you think about it, uh, as I said, the principle is pull, don't just push. So there are times when you want to push something out to market. Uh, But even Apple actually is a very good example of both push and pull. So its innovations have been pushed out to market in many cases. The Macintosh was sort of thrown out there by Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak after they saw something at Xerox Park, but they knew the market was having, people were having some difficulty dealing with the, uh, the IBM PC. So in some ways there was actually a market pull there. And they were actually advanced users and frustrated with character type PCs. But what they did not do, they did not have enough of a pull effect. They never really modified. Their, they, they introduced a closed product that was a great product, but it was, you, it was difficult to write applications for. Uh, they would not license the key part of the platform, which was the operating system, the user interface. And so it remained a very expensive product and it remained limited to what Apple itself could produce or control. And the PC, which was a far less elegant product, sold a million, you know, billions and millions of units far quicker than Apple did. Uh, in recent years, I think Apple's success is very much influenced by pull. They've responded to market pressures to open up their platforms, let application developers build applications. They had a big argument with Adobe, for example, whether they should support Flash on the (coughs) iPhone and the iPad. They've opened that up. So they've done a lot of things to accommodate the market because of market reaction. So they have much more deeper, direct connections to customers now than they used to do. So they are listening. They're combining the notion of pushing out innovations from R&D, but letting customers help them refine what they actually build. And that's sort of, that's a key element in my idea of, of pull, don't just push. Uh, your, other, your other notion is, I think you're right, most companies focus on their product, but the argument I make is that, at least in platform markets, and I made another point that almost all markets are platform markets if you think about it, Um, companies that are successful really need to think about opening up the core elements of their products and letting other companies build around them or link into them. Even if you have a distinct product, if you can't use it with other products in many high-tech markets, it's not as useful as if, I mean, it's not as useful when it's standalone. 
So this is, again, very true of things like phones and multimedia devices and software of all kinds. It's very true of content, da digital downloads. If you could only use uh, a song you download from iTunes on an Apple device and no other device, it's much less useful. If you can use it on multiple devices, it has more value to the user and it's going to be better off for everyone. So the idea is if you open up these products where they can become industry platforms, there's more value in it for everyone because you'll have more companies participating in the innovation process, more customers joining in, more users. So that's the basic idea of platform markets. It's win-win when you open it, and when you try to control everything as one company, like Sony has done in the past or like Apple has done in the past, you're much less likely to really be successful in the long term. Because no one company has a monopoly in innovation. And um, you know, Intel was a great example of that, and I write a lot about that, they could have made their own PCs and software many, many years ago, and they chose not to. They chose to just see the ecosystem and let, uh, let a thousand flowers bloom, to borrow a phrase from Mao Zedong. But, uh, and it's been far more <laughs> successful for Intel to do that. Good time for one more question. One more question? Okay, quickly. Thank you. I appreciate your patience. Very close. It's about the marketing and if marketing can be a platform. And um, I'm going to use the same um, example of uh, Apple, how they, a few years ago, they launched this big uh, campaign, marketing campaign, to create the needs that, well, Mac is much better than BC. Well, it was here in this country, I'm not sure about the US. And they kept saying about the Mac and BC, Mac and BC, until they created the needs that people want Mac. So I think, can we, can we put that comparison, that marketing versus platform? There is no need, but the marketing and keep talking about it, you could create the needs and then you create yeah. the platform. Yeah, no, marketing is a very important part of all this. And as I, I mentioned, indirect network effects are largely behavioral driven and that's very much affected by marketing, marketing campaigns, public relations, uh, what, you're, what other people are doing as you observe what they're doing. So um, I think this goes for any product or platform company. If you're bad at marketing, you, you have a tremendous handicap and you're not likely to be very successful. So marketing is a part of all of this. Uh, marketing is fundamental to Microsoft's success. Many people think that was the major reason why they succeeded. And it was a combination of marketing, R&D, understanding the sweet spot of the market, being half-priced because they had so many companies making boxes and having thousands and even millions of applications built for Windows because they had opened up their platform, whereas Apple was very restricted and controlled. So it's all part of it. Okay, thank you very much. I wanted to thank you all for coming, and uh, most importantly, I wanted to thank uh, Professor Kusumano for a terrific lecture. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.